everyone, and welcome back to Can't Hardly Wait Minute. The podcast where we analyze the 1998 graduation party classic, Can't Hardly Wait, one minute at a time. I'm your co-host, Aaron. I'm your co-host, James. It's Minute 49, which, if you'll recall, yesterday the radio station had the man alone himself. And today we learn that they have the man alone himself to answer your questions live on the phone from his sold-out show in Tokyo. And I have it going through Amanda looking around the room. In a, a shot that I was like, boy, what is Aaron going to write down for this? Because it's not like, it's a silent, like, yeah. 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down, Amanda looks around for the letter writer. Uh-huh. Pro, or, or for where the letter came from or something. Right. She's holding the letter and looking right. around the room. Right. Um, my first note is about the sold-out show in Tokyo. Sure. I was like, all right, well, Pearl Jam had a believable tour schedule. Let's see if Barry Manilow does. Nope. Oh, well. According to two sources, uh, one of which appears to have been an active website in 1998, he didn't play any shows between January 30th and July 25th, 1998. Oh, well. And the the last time he was in Tokyo, and at first I wrote, at that point, the last time he had been in Tokyo, and then I looked more, and it is still the last time he was in Tokyo was... April 29th, 1990. So. Was that a sold out show? I did not see. I will have to look into the ticket sales. This t- this secretly takes place on June 17th, 1990. No, I was going to say, is it possible that he just stayed in Tokyo for eight years? Maybe he was at a, sh- a sold out show. Maybe. Oh, they did say his sold out show. Okay. Maybe not. Yeah. Also, why was he calling into a local radio station at a sold-out show in Tokyo. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. That is wild to me. But, listener, you will be shocked to hear that Preston gets very excited about this and Mm -hmm. immediately runs to the payphone. Okay. Just really quick, they call him the man who writes the songs. So if you want to ask a question to the man who writes the songs, call in at blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So just a really (laughs) quick... Right, right. Uh... (laughs) Really quick, uh, I was like, so they called him the man who writes the songs because of the song, I Write the Songs, which he didn't write. <laughs> Nor did he write Mandy. Right. So is he? But so, okay, but but that this actually explains that. And also, uh, there's a theory that he probably wouldn't appreciate being referred to as that. So okay. th- it's a popular song written by Bruce Johnston in 1975. Uh, Barry Manilow's version reached number one. In, in January of 1976, it won a Grammy Award for Song of the Year and was nominated for Record of the Year in 77. It was the number 13th song of 1976. And previously, it was first recorded by uh, Captain and Tennille and then David Cassidy and then him. It says, Johnston has stated that for him, the I in the song is God and that songs come from the spirit of creativity in everyone. He has said that the song is not about his Beach Boys bandmate, Brian Wilson. So I guess people have said that it was. And I guess I guess Bruce Johnston was in um, the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that doesn't sound like a name I remember being in the Beach Boys, but okay. And, and if you listen to the song, like it's like, I am music and I write the songs. So it's not like... But the, if you were just like, the, the song's called I Write the Songs. It's by Barry Manilow. He must have written it. And he was like, I'm the one that writes the songs. Yeah. So, Manilow was initially reluctant to record the song, stating in his autobiography, Sweet Life, quote, The problem with the song was that if you don't, didn't listen carefully to the lyric, you would think that the singer was singing about himself. It could be misinterpreted as a monumental ego trip. Sure. So 
But then basically, um, to quote the Simpsons, they unloaded a dump truck full of money at his house, and he was like, well, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Okay, so he goes to a payphone, a payphone, which we're going to, hold on, let me see. I think we pull out, yeah, so we pull out, and he is at a drive-in movie theater. Okay, so he didn't just go to the pay, okay, this is why I thought he was at a random parking lot. Right, this is why you thought he was at a random parking lot, because he drives his car to presumably the nearest payphone, which is at the drive-in movie theater. Did they not have a payphone at the school? We had multiple payphones at our high school. Yeah, I don't know. And also places closer than the nearest local drive-in movie theater, but that was well over an hour away, so. Which makes me think that the high school is situated directly next to a drive-in movie theater. Yeah. Like what it, like you said, what is the geography of this town? Yeah, exactly. Can I talk to you a little bit in maybe the most boomer segment about payphones? Yeah. Please so, do. A little bit I wrote this as a note because I of listeners that might not know what a payphone is. True. But also because the the, the history was kind of interesting. Um, so if you were ever in a quiz and you were asked which came first, conversation hearts or payphones, the answer is conversation hearts. Payphones were preceded by pay stations, which were manned by telephone company attendants who would collect payment basically after the call was made. Okay. And so then, uh, then in 1880, uh, the Connecticut telephone company put a payphone in their New Haven office, and then the fee was again handed to an attendant, but like it wasn't in a, it wasn't in like a separate building for for the call. Right. And then in 1889, there was a, a public telephone with coin pay system in the Hartford Bank in Connecticut. So Connecticut, as we all know, is the birthplace of the payphone. Right. But this was a post-pay machine. So you would finish the conversation and then put coins in. I'm not sure how that possibly didn't just lose money all the time. Because yeah. why wouldn't you just leave the phone? Like, right. Like... Like, what was stopping you? Like, unless it was, like, a phone booth that, like, locked and you had to pay to get out. Like, I don't understand. That, I mean, that's possible, though. That, that's, I think that's how... I feel like I a little bit it... think that's how bathrooms in Europe work Some in some places. Like, where it's, like, an exit fee Yeah. to pay to get out. Maybe. So, um, then the coin mechanism was invented by William Gray... Uh, he got a patent for it in on June twenty third, eighteen ninety one. So it it's the thing. It's a like when you put the phone the coin in and it rings a bell. That was the thing that he that he invented. Um, then he he founded the telephone pay station company in eighteen ninety one. And in eighteen ninety eight, the prepay phone debuted in Chicago in eighteen ninety eight. And everyone was like, Oh yeah, no, that makes more sense. I assume. Yeah. I mean, like, um, okay, so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go really quickly now. Um, so by 1902, there were 81,000 payphones in the United States. Um, in 1905, the first outdoor payphones were, were installed. Uh, by the end of 20, 1925, 25,000 of these booths existed in New York City alone. And in 1960, the Bell system installed its one millionth telephone booth. Okay. Wow. Okay. Then after the breakup of the Bell system in 1984, I think they got like uh, D... Um, What's that called? Like detrustified. Like I think they basically had a monopoly on phone stuff. Oh, okay. And I think they kind of got broken up because America was like, uh, "Stop that." Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, so it was not long before independent stores selling telephones opened up. 
Um, after that, privately owned payphones hit the market. Sources differ as to whether the peak number of payphones in the United States was 2.6 million in 1995 or 2.2 million in the year 2000. So okay. I thought, oh, weird, he's going to a payphone, but this is 1998. So basically we were at the height of payphones yeah. um, when, this, when this movie takes place. And then uh, in, since 2007, the number of payphones in the United States has declined by 48%. Uh, in July of 2009, AT&T officially stopped supporting the public payphone service. In the end, at the end of 2012, the reported number of payphones was 243,487. And so currently, an estimated 100,000 payphones in the United States remain as of 2018, with roughly a fifth of them, so 20,000 of them, in New York. When is the last time you saw a payphone? That, that actually had a phone in it? Oh, yeah, I guess I've... There's, like, the... <laughs> It's not a booth, but it's like a yeah stall thing. or like yeah yeah outlet. yeah I yeah even that I can't remember the last time I saw one. I yeah. know that there are some locally, but I can't think where. But yeah, like it's a working a payphone. Yeah, I can't. No. no, yeah, or or even one that had a phone, even if the phone didn't work. I can't think the last time I saw one. Yeah, it was probably sometime when I was in New York. It hasn't been in a few years. I think 2016 was the last time I was in New York. Obama was still president the last time I was in New York. Uh, I remember those times. Yeah. So, I mean, like, but it's funny that in 20 years, basically, it went from, like, the the height of payphones to basically no one uses payphones anymore. Yeah. Which is wild. Um, so then Farther Down by Matthew Sweet starts playing again, uh-huh. um, which is the song that was playing when he was at the pool. And I wrote, this is basically Preston's theme, or maybe even, like, Preston's romantic theme. Yeah. When romantic things are happening for Preston, this song is playing. Yeah. Um, but it basically continues playing throughout the rest of this minute and into the next one, I think. I think so, yeah. So then I said, he's calling from an abandoned drive-in, which I think is an American Graffiti reference. So okay. American Graffiti is uh, the movie that George Lucas made uh, with backing from F- Francis Ford Coppola that basically put him on the map and is the reason why Star Wars happened. Okay. If... American Graffiti hadn't happened, Star Wars wouldn't have happened, and probably Happy Days wouldn't have happened, because it was Ron Howard as, like, a teen in the 50s, and so someone had to have been like, let's make that show. Um, But at the... So, all throughout the whole movie, uh, Richard Dreyfuss is... has seen this this beautiful woman driving this car around, played by Suzanne Somers, and so he's like, oh, let's... You know, he keeps telling people, follow that car, and, like, running after it and all this stuff. So, finally... I'm giving away the plot of American Graffiti. It's great, even if you know the plot of it. Um, He meets Wolfman Jack, who is a a radio DJ, which is hilarious. I just realized that there's even more of a connection. So through the radio, through the power of the radio, he tracks down the beautiful woman he's trying to to pursue. Mm -hmm. Well, he he doesn't track her down. He gives a message to Wolfman Jack to read on the radio, because in this movie, everyone's basically listening to the same radio station. That's like, call... You know, this guy at this payphone number, you know, he'll be waiting for your call. So then the end of the movie, or one of, part of the end of the movie is the sun is rising. It's like, you know, five in the morning and he's sitting in his car at this payphone waiting for it to ring at this abandoned, like, there's no one there because it's again, like four or five in the morning, abandoned, like drive-in uh, diner, like a, like okay. a, you know, girls on roller skates sort of diner thing. Um, that looks exactly like this shot. And I'm pretty sure there is at least some reference to that movie going on in this shot, which is kind of cool because 
clearly there are parallels. I think actually when we were talking about this movie at some point, I think I was like American Graffiti is basically this movie anyway. And I didn't realize that there was a as direct a connection as there is. But uh, that was what I got from that. Okay. So then... <laughs> All right, so remember when we placed a pin in Amanda looking around at the party yeah. um, back three minutes ago or whatever on Monday? Yep. She's still, it cuts to her, she is still on this couch looking around, looking bored as hell. So my note says, so I guess the Kenny and Denise scene and the Preston radio and drive to the payphone scene take place like concurrently? They must take place concurrently at the same, basically at the same time that the letter is having its journey around the party. Right. It has to. Because I was like, or else it takes Amanda a long time to notice the letter. Like, a really, really long time. In which case it's even weird, like it's weird that she even does notice it. Because you, right. you would kind of think that what makes her notice it is the fact that it flies into the bowl of checks sitting in front of her. If she doesn't right. notice that, but just all of a sudden she's like, oh, weird, letter in the checks mix. Right. Like, yeah, the timing of all of this is bizarre to me. It, it truly is bizarre. But she does notice it. She does. I, this is another one where my note says, why is Amanda still at this party? Yeah, yeah. Because, she's, still because she can st- continues to look so bored. But yeah. Right. Um, so she notices it, and she she picks it up, and she reads it, and farther down go it, like it's actually a very well timed song because there's a there's like a, a chill part while she's opening it, and then like it kind of goes into like a magical sweeping sound part of it, mm-hmm. and then it kind of goes into a harder rocking part of it, and like it really works with sort of the emotions of the scene. Sure, which is how it would work if you were a rock star and you were music supervisor on a movie and. So that was your job. And you're like, I happen to have a song, or if I don't, I'll write one that fits this scene. But my last note is, what must she be thinking? Like, is this a joke? Is this for real? Right. Like, she looks around like, is someone pranking me a little bit? Yeah. But also she looks around with a hope, like, what is she expect? Is she expecting to look up and see Cousin Ron being like, I wrote the letter, hi. Right. Or like... Like, what is she, or like, you know, who is she expecting to see? Is she expecting that person has been sitting there watching her not see the letter and now is watching her read the letter? Like, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to get into her headspace and I can't. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there, you're right. There's definitely a hope there where she looks up like, you know, someone wrote this, these beautiful words about me. Yeah. Yeah. And now this letter is in front of me, so surely they must be nearby. Right. Like, which one of you party people is Prince Charming? Right. Uh, What shall I do? Party or woo? Party or woo? (laughs) Yeah. Woo! The other thing is that if you cut this scene with different music, and it was more ominous music, this would be perfect, uh, like, serial killer horror movie type stuff. Like, she's reading it. And she looks around, and it's like, bum, 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 bum. And yep. you're like, who is, where is he? You know, what does the letter say? And it's like covered in blood and stuff. Yep. Jennifer Love Hewitt should do some horror movies. Yeah, I don't know why she's never tried that. I, I don't know. what What's she doing over the summer? You know what I mean? Like, I it's know. like, yeah. I mean, I, I know what you did last summer. I know what I did right. last well, summer. Well, yeah, who doesn't? I mean, I'm a podcaster. I basically, yeah. I, I try and broadcast that as loud as I possibly can. But exactly. Like, but yeah, I mean, that's all I have. It You know. 
this is it's so funny that Preston is not at the party anymore and she is still at the party yes and his letter is being delivered to her through fate Rowan Atkinson invisible Rowan Atkinson dropping the letter in the checks mix uh-huh and he's not there to see her see this he thinks that it's a it's a lost cause this is the best kind of dramatic irony yeah and this is hey listener if you like this the way this specific couple of minutes like from Monday through now feels mm-hmm. go watch the movie serendipity it is basically a movie that it takes this the feels of these four minutes and expands it to like an hour and a half full of this kind of, oh, they just missed each other. Oh, will they find each other? They're not there. They were there. They aren't there. Will they get together for the whole movie? And uh, it works for me, but I know some people that absolutely loathe it. And that is, yeah, I'm looking at one of them right now. Um, <laughs> I could not stand. I'm so sad that I didn't like that movie because I love John Cusack. I like Kate Beckinsale a lot. Yeah. I just, it, it didn't work for me. It frustrated me a lot. I think it it touches a movie fan in me that is so sappy and so nostalgic and so star-eyed that mm-hmm. like it's it's ridiculous like it's to the point that like parts of me are like what is your problem like but there's other parts of me I'm like oh, they yeah. need to find the bill to the whatever and like there are parts of me that I'm like really there's a whole scene where they're looking through paperwork in this romantic comedy but, yep, there sure is. Sure is. And it works for you. This is, yeah, so I, the the fact that he's not there and she's having this romantic moment, I feel like is kind of a beautiful thing. Like, it, it's kind of a cool poetic thing going on because it means that the movie isn't over yet. <laughs> it means That's that now true. She has a thing to, like, she, like, it's almost like the role is reversed and she's now going to. You know, she's looking around. Where is he? Yeah. Perhaps, I don't know, maybe in the next couple of minutes, she'll maybe perhaps start to pursue him in some way. So I think that it's cool to see that role reversal happen. Yeah. But shall we do social media? Yeah, let's do some social media. We as a podcast are on Twitter at JE underscore Minute Movies. And individually, I'm at Unabashedly Aaron. I'm at Unabashed James. We are proud members of the Scavengers Network alongside a bunch of other great shows, one of which we will drop an ad for at the end of this episode. Absolutely, we will. I think that is going to do it for us. I am at under 20% on my phone, so we don't have a lot of time to record the next episode. And as we all know, time is honeys. Go hot dogs! The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven, community-focused, treasured content. Hey, Aaron. Hey, James. What are you watching? Newsies. Oh, I love that movie. What minute are you on? What? What minute are you on? I think my favorite minute is probably minute 37. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just watching the movie. You know there's a way more intense way to watch Newsies. There is? Absolutely. Watch it minute by minute along with Newsies Minute. Oh, you mean the new podcast on the Scavengers Network. Yep. The one that we're the hosts of. Uh, well, 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 yeah. That sounds awesome. When do new episodes come out? Every weekday. Now that's good news. Newsies Minute. So come for Crutchy. Crutchy.